0: If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format.
1: We as journalists and activists have always found it very difficult to find people who will openly talk about being bisexual just don't think there are enough
2: bi perspectives on bi issues.
1: I feel
3: like we've got to talk
1: about it because we're really comfortable
3: doing that.
4: It can be really intimidating. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies.
1: And the second you mention bisexual just their ears pick up.
4: Oh well you're still confused right? No I'm not confused. I've always
2: found myself at the mercy of gay and straight advice.
3: You can have a bit of competition to see who's the better bisexual bruncher. This is Bisexual Brunch
1: Yes, welcome to another Bisexual Brunch with uh, Nikki Hodgson, Lewis Oakley and with me, Ashley Byrne We've got a packed bumper edition We're going to be uh, talking to Tim Manley who's the actor and uh, writer uh, of the web TV series called The Fields in America He's going to be talking to us all about his inspiration for that series which is all about the exploits of a bisexual man He's also going to be telling us all about his own personal bisexual journey. That's to come. Uh, we're also going to be finding out on a more serious note about the issue of self-harm amongst bisexual people. Uh, we always knew that it was an issue amongst LGBTQI people overall, but apparently it's, uh, it looks as though it's worse uh, amongst bisexual people in particular. So the big thing in the news this week is, of course, that apparently... William Shakespeare has been confirmed as bisexual. We knew that. Hurrah! We always knew, didn't we?
3: (laughs) I definitely always knew, Ash, because I had to study Elizabethan poetry as part of my degree many years ago. Well, I chose to. I loved it. We had a really amazing lecturer that used to read us all the sonnets. He was like a silver fox, so that's basically why we used to go to the classes. Uh, But it's really interesting because this is not necessarily to do with the pronouns that Shakespeare used in his sonnets which has given it away, but it's to do with the fact the academics have reordered the sonnets and they can see there's a kind of different tone, a muscularity of language reference to a male figure that that comes apparent from these sonnets. And that's why they uh you know the academics have had this realization.
1: So obviously that yeah they've got this realization that there was some attraction to to men. Mm. But how do they define how do they sort of work out from that uh, that that actually he was bisexual then, from what we can tell.
3: I don't know. I think it matches up with people that he knew in his life. So what they've done is they've they've created a timeline for the sonnets, which they didn't previously have, which matches up with people he was he had an affinity with and where he lived and what he did at the time. Because obviously he kind of ended up with Anne Hathaway, his wife, and you know was in Stratford, but he spent a lot of time in the playhouses in London, and you know he basically he knew bi and gay people. That's what that's kind of what the supposition is, as far as I understand it, anyway.
1: What do you make of it, Lewis? So it's Lewis? all
3: about the timeline.
1: What do you make of it, Lewis? <sighs> it's I mean, it's a great to have a role one. Model. I know It's going to be unpopular. It's great from... to have a role model at last, isn't it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, this is the thing. Uh, <laughs> it, might I know be, some it might be people several get... hundred years
1: ago, but you know. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's the thing. Some people get really like passionate about these things. And I like, I mean, there's Oscar Wilde, which you won't go into now and stuff like that. I've never really been that bothered. Like this whole concept of digging up like dead people and being like, look, they were bisexual. But I um, <laughs> like we've got bisexuals now that we need to focus on. And yeah, obviously it would have been great if they'd have come out at the time and we'd have had those historic things and we're kind of trying to retrospectively muse now. I will say the reason that I actually don't, um, it doesn't put me to sleep straight away <laughs> is because it's kind of what I, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what I want in people, which is if he was bisexual, look at how inspiring it is that he was able to do these plays that have lasted so long. Yeah. And to really be able to play with that concept, like this was a time where you weren't allowed to, to have gay relationships on stage, you know what I mean? But he was able to flirt with that line so well, and do it with style and finesse that has lasted centuries. That's what I want from every bisexual. You know, like if that's the line, let's play with the line. You know what I mean? Like mm. let's let's be inspiring. Let you know. I, I I'd rather I, I have a problem these days where people just seem to be constantly moaning and constantly like there's there's so many problems. What I really like is someone being like, right, those are the rules. Right, I'm gonna really play with those rules. You, I can't show homosexual relationships, fine, but I'm still going to get two men kissing on stage. But one of them will be playing a woman, playing a man, playing a woman.
1: Why? Right.
2: You know, that's quite that. That's why I quite like the the sentiment of the of the Shakespeare story.
1: What, what's in what's going to be interesting about this? And again, we, you know, we 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 have programs, don't we, on TV, and we have uh, films. There's all sorts of things that depict uh, gay culture or explore gay culture and gay gay voices in different ways, and there is seen to be a gay culture, not just about sex, but about all sorts of things. We haven't got that in the bisexual world yet, because um, nobody's really explored it properly. But I I think it's going to be really interesting over time, once more and more bisexual people come out, we discover that more and more people were bisexual or have been bisexual, whatever, to actually really investigate what um, being bisexual gives to the world beyond being attracted to, you know, men and women or different genders kind of thing. I mean, it's, it, that's quite fascinating, isn't it, really? And I think it will, it, it might, you know, uh, throw up a few surprises, Nikki.
3: Yeah, but I mean, Shakespeare being labelled bi or being proven to be bi just confirms what I've always believed, which is that the most interesting and talented people are bisexual.
1: Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, while we've been talking, I've just discovered from one of our researchers that actually... Uh, before the end of this show, we're actually going to be able to speak to the experts, uh, the people who've come oh. up with this research on uh, on um, on Shakespeare. So you'll be able to put all your questions um, to them later in the show. And Lewis, you can either ask questions or go and fall asleep in the other room. It's up to you, whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be an interesting discussion.
3: I can't wait. I'm geeking out already.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and also in the news this week, Lewis has been making... Uh, the headlines. I mean, he's never out of it, really. He's always t- spouting about something, <laughs> spouting his mouth off about something. But you're uh, all it's over the... It's been a hard gig, Ashley. lately. <laughs> Correct. Trying
2: try to get people to talk about bisexuality,
1: it's not as easy
2: as it used to be, and it was never easy to begin with.
1: <laughs> well, you, usually you just take your top off, don't you? I mean, that's he does what,
3: usually it? just take his top off, to be fair. But I think I he's running been out been able of pictures. To go to the
2: gym. Coronavirus it holds me <laughs> back on all forms.
3: <laughs> he's running out of pictures.
1: But this, I don't know. but this, but this time you've you've actually been talking about your own sort of background and your your mixed race and you, you know you've got Jamaican heritage and whatever. And you, you've been talking about this in relation to your bisexuality. Tell us a bit about that.
2: Yeah, so obviously there's been a lot of discussion on race recently. And I have always been one of those people that's really been focused on, no, I'm not gonna talk about every issue. I'm focusing on bisexuality. But there are a few points where where race and bisexuality meet for me and interne- intersectionality is a big thing. Um, and I was telling the story basically about how when I came out as bisexual, I kind of banked on a few things happening, especially doing it so publicly which were, you know, being called gay, being called attention seeking. But the one thing I never really thought of was that it would rob me of um, the chance to kind of explore my Jamaican heritage. And in the piece, I kind of talk about how my granddad and I um, a year ago kind of decided that we would go to Jamaica and visit. And I was quite excited about it because to be honest, I don't know that much about my Jamaican heritage out of what I have been told. And I really wanted to go and see, like for me, going to Jamaica would have really brought the whole thing to life. I'd have, it would have been able to have shared those memories with my granddad and see where we came from and and meet the people that are still there. Um, and basically when I kind of announced to the family of like, yeah, Grandma and I are going to Jamaica, it's gonna be great. There are a couple of family members, especially the older ones that were just a bit like, oh, but have you thought about this? And you know when someone's just trying to politely put you off something until, well, my family me and my family one of them was just like right this is what we're worried about i was kind of like you know you your name is easily google googleable um you know you put lewis oakley and you see a guy in his underwear bisexual on his chest um and you know jamaica does have a problem with homophobia and being anti-lgbt and you know i kind of did the research and looked into it and it's very true and even speaking to some people outside of the family that have been to jamaica they were They weren't telling me like, oh, it'll be fine. It's just your family being silly. It was kind of like, "Mm, yeah, that's a tricky one. And basically the piece is kind of me talking about how I kind of made that decision that actually maybe it is a bad idea to go. Um, Just because, you know, I I can't hide anything, to be honest. Um, And the attitudes there do need updating.
3: Oh, Lewis, that's really sad. I really feel for you. Do you know what is so rubbish about it? It's only really the colonial legacy of Britain that has caused this problem, right? Because all the anti-homosexuality laws are British anti-sodomy laws, aren't they, from the Victorian era? I was speaking to a guy called Mark Gavissa recently who's written this, he's a South African guy who's written this incredible book called The Pink Line and it's all about the places in the world that you can't dare to admit that you're queer and he talks about um, the Caribbean being one of the places where they used to, in America, they used to send kind of like queer party ships around the Caribbean and in several instances if they docked at night they would get raided by the local Caribbean countries because they'd get them under the anti sodomy law. So yeah, like this, it's like a kind of ongoing problem, but kind of Britain is responsible for it, which absolutely sucks.
2: It's a tough one. It, it's just a really hard one because, uh, you know, I like I'm proud of my heritage um, of course. and kind of, you know, wanting to explore it, but then feeling like, oh, you could yeah. have done that if you hadn't have come out so publicly. Oh, it's no. just a, it, like, I wouldn't change it if I could, if I had to go back in time and someone was like, You know you won't be able to go to Jamaica, right? I'd still do it because I'm still proud of everything I've done ever since coming out publicly and the people I've helped to the people I've met and the conversations I've had. But it is just, I think it's just one of those things with intersectionality where it's like, it's not always perfect. There is a, there is a sometimes um, a deficit, if you want to call it. I don't know if that's the right word.
3: It sounds like there's a really good documentary in there somewhere though, where the TV company hires a security firm to look after you, first of all, and then takes you to the country and says, this is Lewis with his granddad being out and proud in Jamaica, but you have a security firm <laughs> to look after you.
2: I'll speak to Channel 4 after this.
3: I? I think you should message Channel 4 about this. It sounds very <laughs> Channel 4 to me.
1: Something we've never really had a chance to properly talk about is the fact that you are bisexual and mixed race, which means you're dealing with... So many different intersectionality issues all at once, aren't you? Really? I mean, how? I mean, how do you? <laughs> and we've got we've got issues ourselves, Nikki and I, when it comes to intersectionality in different ways. But I mean, y- you've got a very complex world, you, Lewis, haven't you? Really?
2: <laughs> um, yes, yeah, it's, it's complex. It's weird though, because the the difference is, I grew up around you know, all of my cousins being mixed race. So it's never really an issue. And I honestly, and I know people will think I'm lying, but I honestly remember being about six or seven years old and my mom trying to explain what race was and me just not clocking it. Um, Because I think a lot of people, they grow up in all white areas or all black areas. Like I grew up in a family where no one had the same skin color. Like we had the whole spectrum. And then we grew up in a very Asian area as well. So it was just like, That that whole concept was sort of lost on me at a young age, and also seeing all these, you know, mixed race people around, you just didn't think twice about it. Whereas, like with bisexual, because I felt in a position where I don't know any other bisexuals, I don't know what this looks like. You know, I feel very alone. It's very, it's two very um, different concepts. And then also with coming out and not getting into too personal of a story, but you know, the Jamaican, there were you know, one or two people on the Jamaican side that maybe didn't take it badly, but didn't take it as well as as the white side. And then I always think, well, you know what, like, maybe we haven't done enough in these areas, which is kind of the point of the article. It's like, mm. we can't just, like, make the world a better place for white LGBT people. We have to make the, the world a better place for lgbt people of all races and colors but actually that does then mean we have to we have to kind of put our foot down with certain behavior here and there and that's always going to be a tricky conversation to have and maybe it takes a mixed race person to to say it
1: Where have you felt the most biphobia have you felt it from within the racial side of things or within the lgbt world
2: Ooh, that's a tricky one um I don't know. I guess maybe it's just different. I think maybe you kind of we all have expectations, right? So there's that part of you that's kind of like, oh well, the LGBT they should embrace me. So when you get some biphobia there, it's like, oh, what? Whereas you know, you you are kind of like when you're dealing with different cultures, sometimes you're a bit like you know, with the Jamaican side, it was a it was a it was a, another thought because you know I can be really honest, but um, you know, of the few people I know that are not out to their family. They're Jamaican. Um, whereas on the white side, they've all come out by now. And it is like, that there's still that issue there. And it shouldn't be a, a hard thing to talk about because it's all about making the world better. And actually, you know, there is, there is work to be done. So I don't really have an answer to your question, but it's a, it's a, complicated, it's a complicated situation. But I can, I can
1: definitely see how you're, you know, you might be apprehensive going to Jamaica because you're probably actually one of the most out- bisexual people globally, in a way. I mean, there aren't many people, there aren't many of us at all, actually, who put their head above the parapet as bisexual, are there, really, when you think about it?
2: No, I I mean, there's obviously some other, there's some other great guys out there, but I I do do my (laughs) bit. There's a few. Um, (laughs) None
3: of them come close to Lewis, obviously, but hey.
2: Um... But yeah, it's one of those things that I think the thing with me of why what I've been doing has been so successful is maybe i put it in a way that people really understand. That's what a lot of people have said to me. It's like, it's really relatable. Like I could read this as a straight, a gay or a bi person, really get it. Like you're not getting caught up in too many of the specific language. You're not making it so specific to you that I can't relate. Um, So yeah, like it's, it's, been good. I've, I've been featured on almost every national news site, I think, at this point, other than like The Mirror and The Sun, I think, are the only two. Um, but yeah, that, that does mean your profile's raised. And if you're thinking of going somewhere where being, LG- you know, it's like I wouldn't go to Russia either, but I knew that. <laughs> um, but obviously, I'm not part Russian. So, you, you know, it's just, it's just stings <laughs> a little bit more where it's part of your heritage you want to go there. Mm. But then, is that because people like me have not been stronger with this?
3: That's a really interesting one, Lewis, because there's a there's a kind of argument among academia and also a certain cohort of LGBTQI people that if we go to certain countries and tell them that they're homophobic, that's a kind, they experience it as a kind of neo-colonialism. So they see it as a kind of oppressive if we tell them what to do, what to think, how to liberalise their countries. So it's really, really tricky, isn't it? Getting the right tone, being the right kind of ally and the right advocate. Really complicated. And I think it's
2: all about the arguments you make need to be different. Like, I was fully ready when I was coming out to my family of, like, if they said anything to me, I was going to say, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, white and black people getting married, people used to look down on that. Because, obviously, my whole family is pretty much mixed race. But right. I needed to have something in the bag as, like to explain it in their terms, terms they would understand. And I think, yeah, the, the arguments are always going to have to be different. You're going to have to know enough about that culture to kind of know the yeah. way they think, or, or what the history is, to then be able to make the right argument. Like, we, we can't make the same argument for every culture, country, or whatever it is. So Definitely not. So it's just the right person um, to, to change hearts and minds in the right way. Political
1: I, mean, I mean, there is pressure. I know it's not as strong as it should be, uh, but there is there is actually pressure from within the Commonwealth, of course. Right. Um, because, obviously, the Queen's the head of the Commonwealth. A lot of these countries, she's still head of state and whatever, but... So there is a, there is a subtle pressure on these countries to do more or to be seen to be doing more. But they're not actually doing anything in reality. You know what I mean? It's sort of. No. And this a, was meant you know. to be
3: Prince Harry's remit. Prince Harry and Meghan were meant to take on homophobia in the Commonwealth. So they obviously aren't going to be doing that specifically anymore, but I think they're going to be talking more generally about homophobia. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I mean, they and they probably would have ended up with that road, role if the. I can I, imagine if, so. If, yeah. if our media hadn't gone ape about what they were doing, they could have had a role, you know. But anyway, yeah. that's, that's another story. Another story. Exactly. Lewis, go on. So the
2: research is that LGBTQ plus. Danger index has got Jamaica down as the eighteenth um, in the worst countries for LGBT travelers, um, and they've said that that could actually be costing Jamaica seventy nine million US dollars annually. So every year, that's interesting. Expensive. So you know, it's if they they can make a lot more money, and they would have <laughs> my money, obviously. If I'd have gone, um, and some of the things when researching it that kind of stuck out to me was this one about a survey of Jamaican employers and it found that 54% said that they wouldn't hire a gay person. And what was really shocking is 35% said that if they discovered an employee was gay, that would be reason enough for dismissal. Which for me, that's really, because I think it, that's two levels, right? Like one level is like, I just won't hire any gay people. But it's like, if you've got a gay person that really works for you, and to then be like, oh, no, that is so, un- I can't do it, you've got to go.
3: That, right, and we just that see that as, person, as yeah,
2: that, that's insane.
3: And um, we just see that as discrimination, like, we know that as discrimination here in Britain, so yeah. it's pretty odd. I, mean,
2: I will say one caveat is that things seem to have improved, because in 2006, Time, Time magazine labelled Jamaica as the most homophobic place on earth. Wow. You know, and now
1: it's just 18th, so, <laughs> so <laughs> they're
2: kind of heading in the right direction, right? So what's
1: number one? Do we know what number one is still?
2: Uh, I don't have that in front of me, no. All right, number one. Is mind. it
3: like, what do we think it is? I think it's like Saudi Arabia or somewhere. So, Russia would be quite high. Russia is pretty high. I've been to Russia as well and was pretty frightened when I was going to a club behind a car wash in the middle of Moscow, a dodgy gay club.
1: Oh, it's, oh. it's really annoying because I've got a thing for Russian guys. I'd love to go to Russia. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, they're lovely people. You'll have a great time, but you just have to be there's like guards blowing whistles at you on every corner. It just feels really kind of, you know, circumspect.
2: So this is a bit different, but travel website Gay City has recently ranked Brazil as the top place LGBT travellers should avoid travelling to.
3: What? Since when? Brazil. Brazil was always seen as gay friendly, I thought.
2: Well, not according to this.
3: That is interesting.
1: Well, isn't it because they've recently uh, elected a, a far yeah. right um...
3: Bolsonaro? Yeah,
1: that's right. And but I mean, but, but I mean, traditionally, there's a there's a big tradition of certainly bisexuality in parts of Brazil. Yeah. Actually, in fact, yeah. I think there's a couple that we had. In fact, a, a pansexual group was, in I our program, weren't they? Yeah, the program yeah. we did for the World Service. Yeah, absolutely. but it is
3: Bolsonaro. I think you know, it's cracked down on things like abortion. Yeah. Just anything that we, uh, we uh, you know, equivocate with being liberal,
1: exactly. basically, has exactly. kind of
3: gone in Brazil.
1: Well, that's that's all interesting. And what you're saying, Lewis, there about you, you've you created a bit of a, a profile over the last few years in terms of people, you know, reading your stuff and, and acknowledging it, who aren't necessarily part of the, you know, the, the LGBT, bi-academia sort of world, which does exist, as we know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what I mean is, you're getting out to more, you know, people more in the mainstream. Is reflected actually in the responses we're getting to bisexual brunch because the people are, re- are responding and are, you know that they they are they are saying basically that this is real. You know, they they feel that we're actually talking to them, which is great. I mean, we we haven't had a huge response, but we we, we can, you can tell from the the kind of things that people are saying that they do feel connected to it in some way. So we're obviously, you know, heading in the, you know, the right direction in that sense, which is which is great and it's brilliant.
3: You're listening to Bisexual Brunch.
1: And so to our first feature um on this week's uh, edition of Bisexual Brunch. Apparently, bisexual people are up to 6 times more likely to engage in non-suicidal self-injury compared to other sexual orientations. This is, according to you, uh, researchers at the University of Manchester. The study of self-injury, a common problem that can include cutting, hitting, burning or scratching yourself, used data from 24 independent studies and is published in the Journal of Affective Disorders. Well, Licky and I got a chance to speak to the head researcher, or investigator as they call themselves, into this issue uh, earlier on this week. We spoke to Brendan Dunlop from the University of Manchester?
5: It probably won't come as a surprise to us to know that people who are LGBTQ plus um, have got a higher risk and a higher incidence of a wide range of mental health difficulties including uh, self-injury and we have known about this for a little while however what has been slightly problematic in the literature is that Bisexual people are often analysed um, as part of a wider LGBT or or a wider LGB group. Um, So it's really difficult for us sometimes to be able to discern what the actual risk or incidence is just for bi people. We all felt like this was a really important thing to do because there does
1: appear to be uh, a heightened risk here. Okay, that's interesting. Now, because it's something which isn't talked about that much, often gets mixed up into the LGBTQ plus uh, arena somewhat erased in a way, uh, the bee, a lot of the time. How easy has it been for you to actually get a hold of people to do the research with? Because... People don't wander around with a big B on the top of their head, do they?
5: Yeah, no, no, for sure. We didn't um, recruit any participants ourselves. We basically went and looked uh, at all the literature that's already been published out there. And we kind of took results that other people had, had already reported uh, and kind of put that into a fancy statistical software. And it kind of throws out an overall um, weighted result. It did require a lot of me emailing people and asking for them to give, give us data on bi people separately. And I know that some of the conversations I had with authors and researchers was that they were saying to me that it wasn't particularly their intention to uh, look at bi people separately. They kind of wanted to just look at straight heterosexual people compared to non-heterosexual people. But now I think that we know there is a greater incidence of this particular behaviour Moving forward, I think it's really important that researchers do ensure that they appropriately outreach to bisexual people separately. Connected to that is there is another study which we're running at the same time where we are recruiting young bi people. We found that social media has been a real key driver to
1: reach uh, bi people. That whole thing of lumping everyone together in the LGBTQI thing has been a really major frustration for those of us who there aren't many of us to be fair who are either journalists or activists or whatever in the bi sphere because you know people who are bisexual do have a particular identity and they do get a lot of prejudice sadly from within the LGBTQI world and that's often not recognized is it Nikki?
3: Yeah I mean I suppose what I'm interested in Brendan is does this has come as a surprise to you as a researcher in this area?
5: i think when i started doing this nikki i didn't really know what direction it was going to go when i started delving into it a little bit more i started looking at the research more and also through our other study started interacting with um uh, young Bai people more it sadly doesn't come as a surprise because some of those things that you just kind of mentioned, Ashley, about um, that feeling of not belonging to the LGBTQ plus world and heterosexual world either. What I've learned so far is that for bi people straddling those two worlds is a really stressful and for some people a really traumatic experience and a really traumatic thing to do.
3: Mm. And were there any reasons given for why people were self-harming more or was it just a case of measuring whether they did or not?
5: So yeah, so Nikki, this particular paper is the first paper of its kind. There were seven studies that told us things that were associated with self-injury for bi people and the things that came out as Being the most consistently reported and the most kind of associated, if you like, were symptoms of anxiety and symptoms of depression. I mean, when we're talking about self-injury, some people who uh, engage in self-injurious behaviour do so to regulate their feelings. So I guess that kind of made sense that that came up. But there was also wider kind of life experience variables that came up, such as bullying. That was a really strong one. And perceived heterosexism, experiences of discrimination, and also some very traumatic experiences of physical
1: um, or sometimes even sexual assault. Now, this could really be the tip of the iceberg, couldn't it, really, in a way? Because, you know, we were doing an interview with somebody from YouGov who was saying to us how more and more people have been identifying in recent years as as, as bisexual, and, and from all sorts of uh, age groups as well. We're not just talking about young people to be like older people as well. In fact, Nikki's mum came out as bisexual on a previous programme that we made for the BBC uh, in, in her 60s. So people, a lot of people are living out there with their bisexual thoughts really closeted. They're not able to be open to their own partners or anything. I mean, that must be, you know, creating a huge mental health issue that we really haven't even begun to sort of unravel yet have we You're absolutely right. And
5: I guess in the last kind of 10, 20 years, we've started to see a little bit more um, acceptance, haven't we, kind of generally in in society. But I still think there's lots of stigma still out there. There is um, lots of perceived or actual discrimination, conscious and unconscious discrimination. Um, And yeah, I think especially for people who are a bit older, who have grown up in times where this wasn't just frowned upon, but could have potentially been outright illegal. Living a life which maybe wasn't their true self would have been an extremely stressful experience. So as well, when you mentioned that, it does make me think that potentially there are a whole bunch of people out there that are using whatever strategies they can, such as self-injury, to manage those thoughts, those feelings. As I've said, we haven't got loads of literature and data at the moment to tell us that that's the case. However, I think we can make uh, a pretty um, intuitive guess
1: that this is, yeah, you're right, the tip of the iceberg. And for young people, of course, as well. I mean, you, you, you think, yourself, think that we're living in a more enlightened age and people talk quite a lot about fluidity and all the rest of it. But even still, at the end of the day, what tends to happen is people tend to define people by whoever they're stood with at that particular time. They're walking down the street, hand in hand, man and woman, or a man and a man, woman and woman, whatever, they don't think beyond that. And therefore, people often feel compelled to stay in one camp or another, not to sort of broach the subject. And, and you know, even though we lived in these enlightened times, we're tending to use the word fluid far more than we use the word bisexual, you know, which is, which is weird in a way. You know, it just isn't accepted as a word, is it really?
5: Yeah, and I think certainly some of the literature and also some of the, uh, the, the the bi people that I talk to and that my uh, colleagues talk to, they really talk really strongly about this this experience of invalidation being told by other people that they are confused or that they are on some kind of journey to coming out as gay or lesbian or, or, or something else. And people have been telling us as a research team that that in itself is just such a tough experience and such a tough thing to sit with and and manage that you're absolutely right people will I think feel that societal pressure about who we should love and who who we shouldn't so I can I can imagine that some people potentially feel that it's easier to to hide themselves and to pass for straight so to speak because it it removes some of those potential barriers and it's um quite something isn't it that even today as you said for some people the word bisexual has so many connotations and so many negative connotations and that's what my fear is is that people will be internalizing that and directing that shame that that society kind of projects onto them they're turning that inward and they're potentially hurting themselves so i think um this is an area which requires immediate attention it's something that we know is a problem and it's something that we need to we need to do something about
3: absolutely Brendan. i just wanted to ask you do you think that this bit of research is going to be a gateway to more research do you think for example the conversations you've had with the other academics maybe about it is indicating to you that people are kind of taking this area seriously and they think you know they're, they're keen to investigate further now i hope so nikki
5: i think Ash, uh, earlier you mentioned by and i think um that is something which exists maybe maybe unknowingly as well in, in, in academic circles and in academic spheres. And I don't know why this is. I don't know if this is because researchers feel um, ill-equipped, if researchers feel nervous um, or if they don't know how to engage with the bi community or if it's some of those internalised prejudices that they're not maybe aware of. Some interactions that we've had with academics and researchers, they have been really struck by these findings and they've, they've certainly said that, yeah, we do need to do more about it. I guess with, with research in general, there's always issues of funding and um, the kind of politics behind it. It can sometimes be really tough to make a case for certain research projects. Our research team are certainly doing something about this at the moment. Um, We we do have an online study, which we are still recruiting to, um, where we are at the moment just focusing on young people. Because we know that um, adolescence and young adulthood is a time which is fraught with a whole bunch of difficulties. And it is a time where um, self interest behavior can occur more than other life stages for some people. We've also um, been able to interview some of the participants in that study, which we've been really um, uh, thankful for their insights because it wasn't something we planned to do, but a lot of the people that were involved in our study were saying to us, do you know what? This is such an important piece of work, but at the moment I'm ticking boxes and I need to tell you about what's happened. I need to tell you about my experiences. And we have said that's so true that's something we didn't consider we now recognize how important that is we're also going to capture some of their experiences of navigating covid and you know how how have bi people specifically managed that and yeah i really do hope that other people um, in other countries as well um, pick up the baton and try and uh, do some stuff because we know that in other countries around the world bi people are going to face different problems to um what they face in the UK and they're going to have different experiences and we need to capture that and we need to um, tell each other about that so that we can collectively learn um, what needs to
1: happen next to best support by people. In your in your research or, or, or in the research you want to do, are you thinking about trying to look at bisexual men and bisexual women slightly differently because they tend to have different, well they have a sim- they're similar issues but slightly different issues in the way the world perceives them and the way in which they're accepted or not accepted. So is that going to be a consideration in the future? Are you going to be thinking about on on gender lines as well?
5: Yeah, absolutely. The meta-analysis paper that um, has just been published, we were able to split some of the um, data by gender. And it was just one study which, which told us this, but I think it's a very stark number. It found that bi females, when compared to heterosexual females, had 32 times the odds of engaging in self-injury. That's a massive, massive number, and it suggests a massive, massive risk. We know generally in the um, self-injury world, women um, do tend to um, engage in this behaviour slightly more than men. And that might be purely to do with the fact that women uh, are more open about that or or feel that they can talk about that more. So for our particular studies, because we know that there's a little bit of a difference and also there is something that's going to be swirling around here about masculinity and about um, how that interacts with someone's uh, bisexual identity, We are going to be looking at different genders and as well as looking at male and female, we also um, uh, are capturing the experiences of people that are non-binary and also people that um, are male to female or female to male trans. Um, So as much as we can on an online survey with tick boxes, we are allowing people to identify um, their own gender and we will be able to therefore report for the things that we're looking at how that differs split by gender.
1: Well, we're obviously global, uh, Bisexual Brunch is very new, but it's, uh, it's the first of its kind in a way, and this again shows you that how difficult it is because, you know, the, <laughs> the, people talk about gay community and lesbian community, all the rest of it, there isn't really a bi community. There are people out there who are bisexual, but there's nothing bringing people together, so we're hoping through Bisexual Brunch we can do that, and so far, you know, we've got small numbers at the moment, but the, the figures are quite international. Big, big audience in America, it seems, North America etc which is interesting um how can people get involved in your research obviously it's very early days but just tell us how if anybody wants to get involved what should they do
5: yeah no uh, that's um if anyone if anyone would like to get involved uh, people can um search us on twitter um our handle is um, at Sybil study, S I B L S T U D Y. Um, And on there, we have a link to a contact form where people can um, get in touch with us or they can email our email address. So um, it's Sybil, again, S I B L at manchester.ac.uk. People fill out some surveys once a week for six weeks, um, very quick. They can do it on their phone. We're also um, entering people into, you know, very small prize draws to win some vouchers um, just to say thank you for sharing with us.
1: Brendan, it's been uh, great to talk to you. Please keep in touch. Let us know how the research goes. I shall. And if we can be of any help in the future in terms of, you know, getting people involved and whatever, then please come on to the show again. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you.
3: This is Bisexual Brunch.
1: Now on Bisexual Brunch, it's time for this week's Bisexual Journey story. And this week, the person in focus is Tim Manley. He's an actor and writer and creator of the web TV series, The Fields*. We'll be talking to him about The Fields* a little bit later on. Before we do, let's have a little bit of a taster of The Fields*. Here's a few clips uh, from one of the shows. Uh,
4: all right, camera's rolling. Mm-hmm. Episode four, take 2D, Mark. If I go on a date with a girl and I tell her I'm bi, she just thinks I'm gay. But if I go on a date with a guy and I tell him that I'm bi, he just thinks I'm definitely gay.
2: Yeah, you are confusing people. Apparently. People will always define me a little bit by the person I'm standing next to.
4: If I'm on the street and I'm with a woman, there's this whole part of me that you just don't really see. But if I'm with a guy, the same thing is true. I'd like to learn how to walk bisexually. Before we talk about
1: the feels and the the ground that you're continually breaking with it because there aren't many... um, examples of bisexuality and bisexual characters uh generally in, uh, in in drama and comedy and media as a whole across the whole of the world really um so you're, you're very groundbreaking tim before we <laughs> before we get on to that i'd like to talk a little bit about you yourself and and your own journey to being or feeling comfortable in being out uh as bisexual take us back to the beginning if you can
4: yeah yeah and thank you for having me and thank you for asking it's, I'm always interested to hear coming out stories from bi people in particular because I think each person's is so unique and I don't really know if there's um, you know, unifying things between everyone's stories. And I, I think for me, I don't even think I really realized I was bi until my early 20s. Looking back at my childhood and, and teenagerhood, I can see uh, aspects of it, but I think because... I hadn't seen that identity on screen or read it in books or, or anywhere else. Um, I didn't really know how to recognize it in myself. Um, so it wasn't until I was maybe 20 or 21 or so that the very short of it is I, I had a best friend um, who was a guy. I, I, I suppose I should say i I'd, you know, been dating women for years, and that was felt very correct to me. And... Um, Around that time, though, I I had a best friend. He was a guy. We were very, very close. And it was really a surprise to me to slowly start realizing, well, I think I would also like to kiss him. And I I don't know if that's a normal thing. I don't really know how to name that, you know. Um, I know I'm attracted to this this woman at this party or something. But then when the party ends and I, I go home with my friend and we just talk about everything and and it all feels very comfortable, it's almost like a a slowly dawning realization that that I also could be attracted to him. And I think for a long time, I didn't really know what to make of it. And I didn't really know, I didn't have a name for it. And so I slowly started talking to friends, you know, one at a time. And I think I'd be interested to ask those people, but my guess is that most friends who I spoke to in the beginning probably thought I was coming out as gay. And I think even for myself, there was a brief period where I wondered, maybe I am gay, or have I been lying to myself this whole time with with dating the girls who I've dated? I, I thought I liked it, but there's this whole questioning that then i i underwent where i, I tried to think what well, was it I, th- I thought i liked it was i lying to myself am i lying to myself now with how i feel towards this this friend of mine and it took i mean at least a few years really until i was able to say no i think the word is bisexual i, I would say that i'm bisexual and and even after you start saying it you know you you kind of have to always be coming out. I mean, this was over 10 years ago and I still find that I'm I'm coming out all the time in my daily life um, because people just don't know or they still don't really know what to make of it. Um, and I can remember even back then after I finally had, had told myself, okay, this is the right word for me. I remember um, chatting with a friend who, who's a gay man and, and he said something like, Oh well you you're still confused right and i was like conf- no i'm not confused you know i'm i know i am bisexual that is it and 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 there was you know there was still a little bit of skepticism on his face and so it's tough because i think i think if i again i think if i had seen these stories told or heard these stories told it wouldn't have been so hard for me mm-hmm. to recognize it in myself. And you can't underestimate, can you, when you think about it? I
1: mean, you're talking about it now, you know, in a fairly sort of um, relaxed manner. You know, it's fascinating looking back at how it all came about and all the rest of it. But at the, t- at the time, presumably, it was having quite a psychological effect on you as well, in the sense that you just
4: don't know what the hell's going on and there's nowhere, nowhere to turn, is there? <laughs> it, it's true. And what's What's funny is I I'm grateful to hear it sounds like I'm relaxed even thinking back to this I could cry right now you know because it at least in my experience I I really felt very alone in this experience um because even after I then came out there's not exactly any bi bars to go to you know yeah. I mean I live in New York City which is nice and so I would maybe go to gay bars or um but it's I, it, there, I didn't at that time know of a community to meet with. Now, I, I, I do feel very differently. I feel as though I, I have a bit of a community. But um, I felt very alone in the experience, and I think, even though it seems quite obvious now, the word is bisexual, there is a word for it, I didn't feel like I had the language for it, or I just didn't understand what I was feeling. And unfortunately, every time I spoke to, um, a possible partner about it, they often didn't know what to say either. And, you know, although some people did, you know, to their credit, I can remember, um, I remember in my early twenties going on, starting to, to date a woman and, and we were finally starting to get close and open up and, and she was saying, okay, so tell me what, what's really happening with you. What's really happened with you recently. And, and I sort of said, well, to be honest, the most recent thing that, that really happened to me is that I fell in love with my best friend, who's a guy. And and I told him, and he didn't feel the same way. He's not attracted to men, and, and it destroyed me, and it broke my heart. And, and I remember feeling awkward coming out to her. I wasn't sure how she'd feel about it. And I said to her, I don't know if that's a strange thing to say. And she laughed, and she said, not in this city. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's lovely, yeah, you know. Yeah. And to me, that's sort of how I feel today, where... But it's presumably so she wasn't. Presumably she wasn't typical of the female responses. Some women would have been quite horrified by, it, wouldn't they? Uh, I don't think she was typical, mm. and I do think, you know, I, I think some of the women and and the and the men and who I dated after that didn't. Know how to respond or or responded negatively or or if they didn't quite know how I identified themselves, I would hear them say something that looking back, I would certainly identify as biphobic. But I myself was sort of processing all of it too, and and I think it was just sort of accepted in in the culture that you would say or think certain things, you know, so um, I can't really really fault them. Yes, I have to imagine that that's changing, you know.
1: Now, something that we often come across when we're talking to people who are who identify as bisexual um, is, as you alluded to at the beginning, that every story is different and people identify as being bisexual in, in different ways. So how is it for you? I mean, do you think of yourself as being... 50 50 60 40 you know, are you more attracted to men sexually and more attracted to women emotionally or you know how, how does it how do you define it for you personally?
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I think when I was first coming out um, in my early 20s, my partners the the person opposite me's gender really felt important and I think it felt very different for me to go on a date with a woman to go on a date with a trans person or to go on a date with a, with a man, um, a cis man. They each felt different in their own way, and I think I was processing a lot of my own feelings about gender and sexuality. I think today, I, I mean, if I'm honest... I don't even... I mean, gender sort of feels like a fiction to me. Even sexuality, I, I sort of feel like everybody's probably bi. Like, in a few decades, won't everyone say they are? I'm sure that's not entirely actually true, you know? And, of course... Is I, it just wishful
1: thinking? <laughs>
4: <laughs> it might be. But I think... I th- I mean, in the end, whatever anyone says they are, I, I agree with, you know, whatever yeah. someone's assessment of themselves is. But... Um, it all just, just feels like a fiction to me now. And I, I think some of that is age. It's also probably quite relevant that today I'm, I'm married. I'm in a monogamous marriage. Um, I'm married to a woman and I have a baby. Mm. So it's a totally different life uh, period of my life. Um, But you still identify yourself as
1: bisexual, don't you? You are bisexual. I mean, of
4: course, of course, Um,
1: yes. There'll be lots of people out there that will want to put you in a straight pigeonhole, won't they? I
4: suppose so, and that would be very strange to me. (laughs) I would guess that when I walk around with my partner today, who's a woman, I would assume people often read me as straight, although just as uh, frequently, if I'm alone... I'm read as gay, which yes. is sort of fascinating, and I often don't really correct people because I almost, in a way, no, actually, I, I, if someone really names it, I, you know, I, I'll certainly say, well, I, I'm bi, or sometimes I say I'm queer, but um, I kind of, I'm kind of fascinated by it, by when I'm read in in different directions. It's totally fascinating.
1: How's your partner with the bisexuality?
4: Well, it's interesting. We met back in the days of online dating when you had full big profiles and you really sent long messages to each other and and my profile you know named me as bisexual and i think she's probably one of the i think she might be the only cis woman who actually met me for a date um when i was online dating so that's sort of interesting to me that no other women considered meeting with me but it also feels very relevant you know my My partner grew up with queer parents, and so when she was, you know, when she was a child and going to pride parades, I was, you know, calling my older brothers homophobic slurs. So there's like, you know, I had to cross this whole journey within myself of internalized homophobia, internalized biphobia. Um, I grew up in what I now understand was a relatively conservative part of the states, and so... I think for me, there was this big journey I had to come through. And I think maybe when I met my partner, everything was just a little bit more, um, I think maybe she she just, it was just more normal to her more immediately to be queer. Mm-hmm. What's the um, best thing, do you think, about being bisexual? That's an interesting question. What is the best thing about being bisexual? I think, I think for me, it has opened up my questioning about gender and about sexuality it has led me to think oh the stories that we've been told and the the ways that i've been taught to think about attraction and 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 the self and others are not exactly true and what that might mean is that i can define things myself or I can do my own research and I can learn to see other people and to see myself in my own way. So being bisexual has led me to have to learn how to define myself and see myself and to see others through my own eyes because I don't feel that the eyes of uh, of the media, of the dominant culture are accurately representing me. And as such, I, I wonder if they're accurately representing others either. So being bisexual has led for me to learn to see myself with my own eyes. And for that, I'm very grateful. Um, and I also feel that being bisexual has sort of released me from some sort of prison in a way of of, of heteronormativity, of, of um, maybe even homonormativity, and, and, and of, of seeing my, my gender and how that relates to others in a, you know, in a, in a box. Mm. It, it's allowed me to create my own understanding of these things. And for that, I'm really eternally grateful, even if the process of learning to see with my own eyes was, to be honest, excruciating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Tim, thank you very much indeed for sharing your personal story with us let 's talk a bit about what you do now you have a regular series uh, which goes out uh, online in America um called the Fields which is about a uh, fo focused on basically a bisexual man it's not it's not overtly sexual and it's not overtly bisexual really it 's about <laughs> an individual isn't it and about how that person lives their lives but obviously you do tackle you know the issues around being um a bisexual person um and it's quite um groundbreaking in a way because There aren't many outlets in media, drama, comedy, uh, whatever it may be, anywhere in the world, really, that do anything focused on
4: bisexuality, are there? There really aren't. And I think the effect that it had on me as a creator is that I didn't think that these stories were worth being told because I had never seen them being told. Um, And interestingly it is still a surprise to me to hear you say that, that the show might have resonated with you or that these stories might be in some way groundbreaking because I think you can internalize so strongly over so many years, oh, maybe these stories don't matter. I've never seen them be told. Maybe they're not legitimate. And so I think creating the show in a way came out of this need for myself to see these stories on screen, that I don't even think I could have named at the time, but now I see, oh, I I needed it so badly.
1: What reaction do you get? I mean, I've reacted to, to I've given you my reaction, and I've watched quite a few of them and enjoyed them. What reaction do you get? Do you get people saying to you that, you know, it's great you are actually giving voice to somebody who, to people who are bisexual? I mean, what 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 response do you get to them?
4: Yeah, we I mean, we have gotten so many emails and messages from viewers really saying they are so grateful to see this part of themselves represented. We've had people say to us, I didn't quite know how to name who I was or what I was, but when I see this show, it makes sense to me. Um... We've had letters that bring a tear to my eye and that make me realize how much this work matters and honestly that have made me feel less alone. Somebody writes and says, Your show makes me feel less alone. Well, my feeling is oh few because I I also felt alone and I'm so I'm so grateful to hear that I'm not. The issues that you tackle in the series, I mean, you know, they're not <laughs> They're not hard
1: issues. Some are, but you know, generally it's it's about a guy living. his you know he's getting on with his life basically. But <laughs> they subtly talk about you know sexuality and bisexuality. But it seems that the media overall drama, comedy, and whatever. And there are, there are some exceptions, but overall it still struggles, doesn't it, to deal with the issue of of bisexuality. It still doesn't get the kind of sort of um, serious exposure and discussion and um, analysis in drama or comedy or whatever it is um, that, um, say, homosexuality does. Um,
4: why do you think that is? Why is that? I would li- I would really like to know. I mean, my only guess is that certain gatekeepers who, who might be able to choose what we see and how we see it, you know, don't particularly understand this I- identity. Um... I don't know why we don't hear and see more stories like this. I, and oftentimes when we do see any sort of bisexual character on screen, you know, of course, they're, they're sort of pigeonholed because of that identity. Or one of the things I'm grateful for with our show The Feels is that we try to show a holistic representation of this character and of all the characters, you know, that, in a way, our, our sexuality is just a just a part of who we are, mm-hmm. and also in another way, it really imbues all of who we are. Uh, both, I think, are simultaneously true. I don't know why we don't see more of these things on screen. I, I think we we need them, and my only my my very honest thought is that we soon will see more of these stories, and I think we will hear people saying they are so grateful to see them on screen, and I think the more that we see these stories. I think the more viewers will say, I didn't realize how much I identified with that. Mm -hmm. One of the tendencies, I think, is certainly in the... uh
1: Dramas here in the UK and certainly some American dramas I've seen as well, uh, but some of our soap operas, in particular, is that they um, they'll bring a bisexual storyline into the in, into the program and and uh, you know it can be quite exciting and interesting and all the rest of it. But of course, because bisexuality can be quite complex, and yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether it's the writers or the audience that get perplexed by the complexity, but suddenly they either turn straight or gay or are killed off often. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh no. Oh no. I mean I, I, in a way, I can understand why it might seem complex to folks because it asks us to rethink our understanding of sexuality and our understanding of ourselves. So it in a way, and and because it is something that is different for each person. But that being said, I think being straight and being gay are also different for each person. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I don't think this should be so revolutionary. Oh, goodness, each person who says they're bi feels differently about it. I I think each person who identifies as straight or gay also feels differently, you know, toward different people. So it's not so revolutionary, but for some reason, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. Do you think one of the problems is and this
1: is in the word, really, do you think one of the problems we're battling against is the fact that um, people talk about being gay or straight or whatever, um, and lesbian, but bisexual uses the word sex and sexual. And do you think that's... I mean, there's nothing wrong with sex and sexuality and, you know, um, you know, all those kind of things, but do you think there are certain elements of society that have a problem with it because they think that it basically means that people are, you know... are um, sort of um enjoying themselves a little bit too much, as it were
4: <laughs> yeah yeah i I have thought um I've thought about that before because I do think to some extent, if you talk about your sexuality, it can feel a little bit like, oh goodness, you know are we going to talk about um something really private or something really salacious now um and i was I was raised Catholic, so I am very uncomfortable with all of that, <laughs> you know, but i I think, and, and it's interesting that you point out that the word bisexual has that word sexual in it, right? So maybe to some extent, it, it does feel a little bit um, scary for that reason, even though, of course, I, I don't think it, it should. No,
5: no.
4: Um, I think also, you know, there's some complexity with this word bi because um, people can wonder, you know, does that mean are you sort of affirming a um, a gender duality with that men and women or uh, certainly the definition that I prescribe to and that I think more and more people do is that this word bi is sort of, it means you're attracted to your own gender and other genders, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. more than one. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's a challenge with talking about language um, around it, but I think that those challenges only speak to the actual complexity of our human experience of sexuality and gender, which is varied, I think, for everybody. Now... I said at the
1: beginning that what you did is groundbreaking. I think it is groundbreaking what, you, what you've done, and you, you're still doing it now and still writing and still producing these uh, the, the, the feels and, 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 and writing about your, you know, your sexuality and whatever. Um, but there aren't many people who do. Hopefully there'll be more in the future that talk more about it. Just tell us what you think. You know, a word of encouragement to people out there who would like to talk more and speak more and write more about their own experiences. As somebody who's actually done it, what would you
4: say? I have only had the best experience speaking about and writing about the parts of myself that I really didn't think others would understand. The more that I write about something I fear others won't understand, the more people say back to me, oh my goodness, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it always feels like an affirmation, specifically with sexuality. The more I tell stories about being bisexual, which when I started were stories I didn't think others would understand, the more I hear back from people, thank you, thank you, thank you. I really believe that when we tell the stories, we don't know if other people will understand. They will meet us and they will say, thank you for telling that story. I didn't think anyone else felt that way. And it is always a relief to hear. Finally, then, what's the future of the fields? Where is it going next? That is a very good question that we are trying to figure out right now. <laughs> we are always writing new material, and we are also having conversations about what is next. Um, I would love to. I would love to help the show find a, a larger audience, and I would love to tell more of these stories and um and i would love all the help in telling these stories Mm. so we are we're writing new things and we are talking to people and we are we are going to find a way to tell these stories because they matter
3: you're listening to bisexual brunch Uh,
1: now we're going to return to what we talked about right at the very beginning of uh, this week's show which was um the revelation that Shakespeare was in fact bisexual. And um, Nikki said this didn't come as a surprise to her. She thought all, all along that Shakespeare uh, was, was bisexual. Lewis was a little bit, uh, bit sceptical and not quite sure whether he was that bothered about all these sort of people who were dead being bisexual. He's rather focused on uh, people who are alive, as it were. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sure we've, got some, we've all got some great questions to ask. Paul Edmondson, who has uh, basically come up with this research. Paul, Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Tell us a little bit about where this comes from, where it stems from, and um, yeah, what makes you think Shakespeare is bisexual?
0: I've been working on Shakespeare's sonnets for about 25 years, sometimes in collaboration with Professor Sir Stanley Wells. And we've just produced a new edition of Shakespeare's sonnets called All the Sonnets of Shakespeare for Cambridge University Press. And in preparing that edition, Uh, We've taken a very distinctive approach to these poems and they were first published in 1609 and the order in which they were published in 1609 was not the order in which Shakespeare wrote them. That's a really important point in all of this because what we've done is for the first time ever we've rearranged the sonnets as far as scholarship allows us to do through close study of individual words and uses of words over time. We've arranged them into chronological order. This has been a revelation. Why? Because for two centuries or more, a myth has established itself around Shakespeare's sonnets, which is a story which was brought to them in the late 18th century. And the story is about Shakespeare's being in love with or being infatuated by a so called fair youth. And then he has a liaison. Uh, an affair with a so-called dark lady. And what's happened, Ashley, is that those two fictional characters have become real as far as Shakespeare's sonnets are concerned. Now, although at one perspective that sounds like Shakespeare's already bisexual because he's got this fair youth and he's dark, he's dark lady. And we can look at sonnet 144. Which begins with two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits do suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worse a spirit a woman colored ill. That allows us to think, oh, that's that's the story that's going on. But when you look at the sonnets in chronological order, the story suddenly disappears because he's writing the sonnets over a 30 year period. And he's, what he's definitely not doing is he's not setting out to write a story and he's not setting out to write a sequence of poems. The 1609 collection uh, represents poems written over a much longer period of time than we've properly given credence to. And when you put those in chronological order, and think about them differently as individual poems, some of which undeniably are related to each other, pairs, mini sequences among them. Definitely what it does is, it exposes their personality as poems in a way that I I personally have not appreciated before all the years I've been reading them. And and when you look at the poems free from that over-determined story, which has accrued around them over time, you realize that actually there is a bisexual personality across some of these poems, across many of these poems, interspersed among the the period that he's writing. By which I mean, there are two love triangle mini sequences in Shakespeare's sonnets. Sonnets 40 to 42, and sonnets 133 to 134. If listeners are in any doubt about where to start looking for Shakespeare's bisexuality, start with those poems. Read them ever so carefully, and you'll realize that he's tying himself in knots about a female lover and a male lover at the same time. And they're not necessarily the same male and female lover across those poems because they're written at different time periods. And the likelihood is they have nothing whatsoever to do with this fictional fair young man and dark lady. And also, one realizes that the fair youth story, which has been around for two centuries, is actually a defensive story, which really wants to set out to prove that Shakespeare was heterosexual, really, because although he's infatuated by the fair youth, it's not really going anywhere because he's got this dark mistress and he's married already with children. And, and, and actually, the dominant story, ironically, has served to emphasize Shakespeare's heterosexuality more than anything else. By removing that story, we leave these poems open and vulnerable and honest and painful and struggling and beautiful and lyrical and all sorts of things. And, you know, I think I think it's pretty clear to me that Shakespeare didn't want these poems published, that they appeared at least 12 years after the fashion for sonnets had died out and i think what we're looking at and i'm not it's not an original thought to say these are personal poems at all but i think we've rather forgotten that over the last few decades in shakespeare studies and i think what what stanley wells and i have done is we've we've modernised the way in which we think about shakespeare's life and personality in relation to his creative output and you know i personally think that shakespeare wanted to keep his sexuality secret and that he was using a form the sonnet which which he made himself master of really to work through some tough emotional stuff for himself you know and it's still not easy for people who are bisexual to be bisexual right still not easy well go back 400 years and you find you know language for example at the beginning of Sonnet 20 which we might suggest is a a late 16th century, early century, 17th century man reaching to articulate a language of desire that is just not available easily to the culture of the time. And he writes, um, a woman's face with nature's own hand painted, has thou the master mistress of my passion, a woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change as is false women's fashion. An eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth, a man in hue, all hues in his controlling which steals men's eyes, and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature, as she wrought thee, fell a doting, and by addition me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. But since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, mine be thy love, and thy love's use their treasure. What he's saying is, you look like a man-woman, you're so androgynous, I'm attracted to you entirely. That's the first four lines of the poem. The next eight lines is, you really were created as a woman, but you were given a penis, which I'm really fascinated by that, because I love your penis. But actually, I know it's nothing to do with me because I'm another man. So I've got to give you over to woman's love, even though you are pricked out for women's pleasure. So he's eight lines talking about the fact the object of his desire has a penis. And that does not suggest to me a heterosexual personality at work in this this sonnet. Um, So I think we've got there a a sonnet, and sonnet 20 is not alone in crackling with sexuality. Sonnet 151 is definitely addressed to a female subject. And so let's say it's, you know, if he, it, it's, it's Shakespeare showing his affection to women. And in that sonnet, um, he experiences an erection. Um, and because of the way the sonnet form works, it usually requires that you take a change in direction after the first eight lines to make the rest of the poem you know, more interesting in terms of taking a new direction and then a conclusion with a, a rhyming couplet. And at the change of direction, he, he, has, a, he has an erection. So he, he talks about, um, my soul doth tell my body that he may triumph in love. Flesh stays no farther reason, but rising at thy name doth point out thee as his triumphant pride. Proud of this pride, he is contented thy poor drudge to be. To stand in thy affairs, fall by thy side. No want of conscience hold it that I call her love, for whose dear love I rise and fall. That's pretty obviously sexual. That those lines—that um, you know, is not the reader being prurient in any way. That is Shakespeare writing a sonnet about the the, the physical effects and joy of of being in love being attracted to a female so at sonic 20 you have a fascination with the male body and uh the, the man's penis and at Sonnet 151 you have shakespeare's own penis experiencing an erection because he's in love with a woman so you know this i've put it as clearly as i possibly can put it in terms of now do you see <laughs> uh, it, it seems pretty clear to me that he was equally fond of 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 men and women and and that's not been a popular thing at all to say about shakespeare and when i when i started to think about bisexuality in literature um, i was in touch with luke turner who's the author of the bisexual memoir very fine one it is called out of the woods and he i consulted him and and he said is paul there's hardly any bisexual reading list for 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 literature of the past, you know, you can have gay, you can have lesbian, but you ask for bisexual, um, you know, bisexual uh, examples of, of literature, and you get a bit stuck. So um, I did discover the excellent Marjorie Garber's Vice Versa. Mm, that's which a is, wonderful it's book. It's a wonderful book. It's a massive yeah. book, and it's and it's very good. It's very good for sources because although she's not giving you a bisexual reading list, she is looking at. Bisexual, bisexuality across culture over many centuries. So you know, you look at her footnotes and you see what she's reading, and then that's really helpful. She has about half a dozen pages about the bisexuality of Shakespeare's sonnets, but she, because she's writing in the 1990s is is very much locked in this traditional story about the fair youth, and the which still allows her, which still allows her to say shakespeare's bisexual, but not quite in the way that we're now able to see because of the chronological approach. So. That's that's how the new edition of Shakespeare's sonnets um, might be used to think about Shakespeare's bisexuality.
3: Well, Paul, I find this so fascinating because I studied literature many years ago. Actually, I did a whole module on Elizabethan Love Poetry under Dr John Rowe. I don't know if you remember him. He used to read to us in class. York University,
0: he's a fine, fine scholar. I know John.
3: He's wonderful. And um, we. one of the questions that we, I think we had a discussion at the time about the fluidity potentially of Shakespeare's sexuality. And one of the points that one of us in the class made was, well, is it not just Shakespeare trying on for size what it feels like to be bisexual because he's curious about what it is to love? You know, how do we know that it means that he personally had those feelings, if that makes sense?
0: Well, I suppose I'd say we we don't know and we can't know but how do, how do I know when someone starts telling me they have bisexual feelings that they're, they're speaking the truth? There comes a point that you decide you're gonna trust what somebody's writing about or you're not. And I think Stanley Wells and I have been pretty clear that we're, we're willing to um, believe what Shakespeare is saying in these poems. Because although the sonnet itself is a arti- highly artificial form of verse with you know, certain rhyme schemes and structures and rules to obey, these poems are not like other sonnets of the period. They're extremely distinctive. So there's something very unusual going on in Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, and it, it, as I say, it looks like he didn't want to have them published. Um, so A because they were published very late, and, and B because, you know, the, there's a dedication by the, the printer of the 1609 volume. Um, and who's thanking a Mr. WH, not a Mr. WS, for presumably providing him with a manuscript. And, you know, as we know, those of you who knows a little bit about um, Shakespeare sonnets and Shakespeare studies, much ink has been spilt over the centuries trying to work out the identity of Mr. WH, whether he was the procurer of the manuscript or whether he was... Um, the lover, was he the fair youth? Again, we're locked into this myth with WH. Um, Most plausibly, it's been suggested in recent times, he was another printer, another publisher, who somehow got his hands on Shakespeare's manuscript and published these sonnets. And the title page says, Shakespeare's sonnets never before imprinted. These are not published as sonnets by William Shakespeare or or the title of two lovers, like Astrophel and Stella by Philip Sidney. You know that there are somehow in the poem as characters or imagined characters, even though they might arise from the author's own experience. These are Shakespeare's sonnets, and that's a kind of weirdly generic title, which is using his name as a selling point. And and as I say, I think. More and more, I think he didn't want them published. I think he wanted these were a lot of these were secret poems. Not all of them. Not all of them. They're all it's a great variety, great ragbag of poems. That's why it's definitely not a sequence. Um, Some are very lyrical, and you know they include some of the greatest poems ever in in English, Shakespeare's sonnets. And if you want to know what those are, look at Sonnet eighteen, Sonnet twenty nine, Sonnet thirty, Sonnet one hundred sixteen are among the finest poems ever written in the English language of anything. And then you've got, you an, and, and then you've got poems which are extremely painful about love and full of self-loathing and jealousy.
3: Yeah, so it's a real catalogue of human emotion, it is, isn't it? It is, yeah. It really is wonderful. So, how, Paul, how do you think this is going to change academia? Because that's what I'm interested to find out now. Because obviously, if if people kind of accept the the new positioning of the sonnets, they're going to run out to do a whole range of research. The historians are going to try and find out evidence of who his bisexual lovers were and things, aren't they? Presumably.
0: Well, I think what we've done is we've 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 rather left the identity of the um, lovers. Aside on this one, we're definitely less interested in that because that's that's the kind of biographical approach which has been going on for centuries now, mm. um, and which has etched itself very much into biographies of Shakespeare. So, so the myth of the sonnets has actually crus- en- encrusted Shakespeare in biography. What we think we've done, what we hope we've done, is we've 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 broken free of that, and we're now able to think about the sonnets differently in relation to Shakespeare's life. And 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 one of the out- one of the outcomes of that. And it's, not, it's definitely not the case that our new edition is all about bisexuality. It's not. It's just that that's one of the outcomes of thinking differently about these poems in relation to Shakespeare's life. So I very much hope that our book develops Shakespearean biography and the way we understand Shakespeare's personality. And, and more and more, I think that, you know, there are, there are ways in which you might think, well, how can I feel closer to Shakespeare the man? And one thing we might do is visit Shakespeare's birthplace in Stratford-upon-Avon. We might go to the grave and pay our respects to where the mortal remains are buried in, in Holy Trinity Church in Stratford. And then, you know, the next thing we might do is read Shakespeare's sonnets really carefully and think, what do these tell me about the person who wrote them? And that's what I hope we've achieved with our new book.
3: Yeah, it's wonderful. And I think something else you'll do unwittingly is, as you were saying before, you were mentioning there, the author that says there isn't any bisexual literature. That's definitely something that we found. I've written a book on the history of dating. And when I went back to sort of 1740 to start it, I couldn't find any evidence of you know bisexual writers even though we know bisexual people have always existed so maybe this is going to help everybody review the canon and start thinking more carefully about whether somebody is bi when they're writing whether it's fiction or poetry or you know whatever it is I hope so I
0: I hope so Nikki because I mean you know Mm. um you know I, I go back to um Virginia Woolf who herself was bisexual yeah um and she talks about Shakespeare she she locates it in Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who'd said something similar before, but Shakespeare's having a man-womanly mind. And Virginia Woolf in a room of one's own sees a couple getting out of a taxi and the taxi suddenly becomes a kind of brain with a male and female aspect in the brain. And this couple <laughs> gets out of the taxi and that sets Virginia off as thinking, gosh, you know, this is the man-woman, this is the Shakespearean mind. Shakespeare's yeah, was a man-womanly mind. And that that maybe was her way of, you know, Trying to articulate, he was equally in love with with men and women, or yeah. he was attracted to both men and women.
3: That's interesting.
0: I I also think you know I mean I don't know how far you how far you talk about this on the program, but you know I think there are a lot of people out there who are who are, are who are bisexual and just haven't admitted it, and um because why? Because partly because of the prejudice against bisexuals that you're either gay or lesbian, you've, you've just not jumped off the, off the fence, that's your problem. That is the classic prejudice, isn't it, against the mm, bisexual person. If we can label you firmly and, and, you know, push you in this direction or that direction. And one and wants to say, well, actually, no, you know, for, for a lot of people who, who are honest about their feelings, and I, as I think Shakespeare is being in the sonnets, you know, bisexuality is, is a very real and very human and very authentic Part of being human, for for more humans than I think we suppose.
1: What's uh, depressing about it is you, you're talking about something that have, was going on hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and we we're, we're still in the same situation. Did you did you come up up against any um, resistance yourself, or have you over the years come up against any resistance to investigating the whole area of bisexuality? I mean, does it get dismissed within academic circles still? Do you think?
0: Well, you know, I have not, I have not de- I have definitely not set out to investigate bisexuality in in re- in, in producing this book. I definitely haven't. And in it, and although some of the authors I have naturally been drawn to myself, like Virginia Woolf, um, over time, uh, are bisexual. That that's that's not the case of me saying, well, I'm making a special study. It's not. It's just not. I'm I, not really what I've been doing. But but I think that. Um, I feel like it's quite a brave thing to be saying about Shakespeare's sonnets because of, and I hadn't realized until Luke Turner, the author of Out of the Woods was, was in conversation with me, just Mm. how much prejudice there is out there um, against the bisexual experience of human life. Um, And, you know, we say bisexuals, and of course what we really mean is the bisexual experience of human life. If we expand it and talk about it in those terms, you know, that, that starts to challenge the prejudice straight away, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking along the lines of, do you think we'll eventually get to a, a point where when people study Shakespeare in in secondary school, that this will be talked about and that, and that this will be looked at? Um,
0: I hope so, uh, Lewis, because I think that, um, I think it's possible that because of the traditional story, Shakespeare's sonnets have already got a bit of a reputation about being, um, slightly controversial anyway i think by our edition trying to make them as honest as possible that might remove some barriers and allow conversations to happen within the classrooms of schools and and universities of a kind that you know haven't been happening before around these poems and you know literature becomes worthy of study partly because of the conversations we want to have about it um, and i and and there are always lots and lots of conversations to have about Shakespeare. And what I hope we're able to show with this new edition is we've, we've just opened up a a whole new conversation about Shakespeare's sonnets, which, you know, let's keep talking about them. Let's keep loving them. Let's keep questioning them. Let's keep reading them to each other. And they're so complicated. They're so, they're not easy poems, you know? And so the book includes paraphrases, literal paraphrases of every single sonnet. And the other thing to know about the book is not just the 1609 sonnets, it's the sonnets from the plays, which are also interspersed chronologically among the 1609 sonnets. So there's a lot happening in this book, which, is, which, which has just never been done before. So although there are 154 sonnets published in 1609, our book prints 182 sonnets. Because when you go to the plays and put out the, the epilogues and the prologues and the bits of dialogue that are in sonnet form or monologues in sonnet form, that's what you get to. And he's writing the sonnets, he's writing the sonnet form over about 30 years. So it's it's just, it's obviously a way of thinking and a way of writing that he is just really important to him and that he feels really close to.
3: Wonderful. Well, I I have been very excited about this story, and I was excited to talk to you all week, Paul. So oh, Nikki, you thank you. Thrilled me. You thrilled and me. And I'm thrilled to be reminded of
0: the lovely John Rowe from your oh, university. Oh, he's such
3: a diamond. <laughs> he probably wouldn't remember me, but I loved him. I loved being read to him, uh, being read to by him. It was an absolute treat.
1: <laughs> thank you, Paul, for talking to us. It's been great, great to Hi. hear all that. Keep us, um, keep us posted on you know any more work that you're doing and how things are developing because you know you're saying there that there's not much uh, conversation about bisexuality generally well you know our podcast is one of the few that's actually doing stuff in the mainstream as it were you know you know what i mean
0: well i, I, I do you know actually i really admire that and I, I wish you all well and i hope you keep at it and keep having these conversations and uh if you want to talk more shakespeare in the future you know where to come to all do thank
1: you very much for me, Wonderful. Take
0: care. thank you thank you bye thanks so thank much you. Bye-bye.
1: For... Bye-bye. <laughs> Okay, well that's Bisexual Brunch for this week. If you've
2: got any comments, thoughts, musings, do get in touch with us at, at Bisexualbrunch on Twitter.
3: And thank you for listening and we'll see you later.
2: Bye for now. Oh, thank God i got to get these headphones off. They are itching. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this programme is an MIM production. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.